Tampa Bay Buccaneers select Leroy Selman, defensive end, Oklahoma. Yes, Buck fans, this is the podcast that takes you back through all the best games, moments, and players in the history of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. This is the BuckPower.com podcast. Now, here's the unofficial team historian and your host from BuckPower.com, it's Paul Stewart. The Buccaneers are about to embark on their 48th season of NFL football and the others have all begun with high expectations and sometimes even memorable wins. But 1985 was the first one who would have a new head coach as John McCabe retired and had been replaced by Lehman Bennett out of football since being fired by the Falcons after 1982 in spite of his three playoff appearances in six years. It was also going to be the first season played without Leroy Selman meaning no one was really quite sure what to expect from the Buccaneers as they went into their 10th season of NFL football. Wilder all the way down to the 15-yard line. They simply cannot stop this man today. He's got a man open. Touchdown, Kevin Houck. Play action, wide open, touchdown. Beautiful play, well executed to Kelvin McGee. Joining us on this show is a man who started at centre, not just in this game, but over 100 games for the Buccaneers, and he's one of the most popular players in franchise history. Randy Grimes, welcome to the Buck Power podcast. Thanks for having me, man. I really appreciate it. So 1985 must seem a long time ago, but sometimes not so long ago with all the memories you have. I do. I've got some great memories, though. And, uh, you know, I've got some not so great memories, a lot of not so great memories. But, uh, you know, all in all, I wouldn't trade it for anything. You know, I love my time here. Matter of fact, I'm still here, still live in Tampa and are in St. Petersburg. And, and, you know, it was a great opportunity. We started our lives together out here, me and my wife did, our families. And it just so happened we were not a very good team during that decade. So why is this game so important to me? Well, I became a Bucks fan back in 1982, as many of you know, when highlights of their win over Miami were shown on Channel 4. They would not be shown again until a brief appearance four years later, and all we would see were clips of touchdowns being scored against the Buccaneers in the weekly roundup. Now, through my media contacts, I met up with someone who could not only get hold of NFL game copies, but could convert them from the American PAL format to a system we could use over here. And this was the one game I got before we went out of business. So, for many years, this being the only game I had, I watched it multiple times, probably to the extent where I've seen it more than any other game outside of the two Super Bowls, which, of course, I watch in their entirety every year. Now, Channel 4 were the British station covering the NFL, and their coverage was being presented by a local DJ, Nicky Horn, with former Patriots kicker John Smith joining him for the 1985 season. They would show highlights of a key game and then a roundup of other results and standings. Little did I know that 16 years down the road, I would become one of the presenters of the NFL coverage to the British public. But for now, I was editing a fledgling newsletter about the Buccaneers for British fans, then entitled The Buccaneer, and the fan club I'd created was in its first year. This is the BuckPower.com Podcast Network. The Bucks had gone 1-3 in, in the preseason, although they had stunned the Steelers and their own home fans by scoring twice in the first minutes of the home opener. Steve DeBerg would return as starting quarterback with USFL refugee Alan Risher backing him up. 
but the spectre of Steve Young hung over the veteran signal caller as the Bucks had selected Young in the USFL dispersion draft. He was expected to sign with the Bucks any day. James Wilder was coming off an incredible 1984 season in which he carried the ball a league record 407 times for 1,544 yards. He also caught 85 passes to lead the team and had been selected to his first Pro Bowl. Now the Bucks had lost 11 consecutive road games going into this encounter, their last away success being Wilder's 219-yard game in Minnesota in November 1983. Did the players expect Wayne Fonts to get the job after John McKay retired? Yes, yes. A lot of people thought Wayne. And we wanted Wayne. We as players wanted Wayne to get the job. We weren't ready for that RV salesman out of Atlanta to come in. And when he came in, you know, he brought a lot of his people with him. And, you know, that just started the whole rollover of that whole decade, you know, with Lehman Bennett and everybody that he brought in. And we were, we were disappointed that Wayne didn't get it. Was it quite a culture change going into the 85 season with a whole new coaching staff? Yeah, I mean, they throw a new playbook in front of you. Uh, that was my deal every two years, practically, having a new playbook thrown at me. But, yeah, it's, that was the first time that I, you know, I knew that football at that point was a job and not a game anymore. But when you see a rollover of coaching staff and you realize for the first time or, or or for the second time, really, because you just proved yourself to McKay and that whole staff, you have to do it again, you know. And Coach Kim Helton was uh, was our offensive line coach. He just uh, was his first pro job out of Miami, University of Miami. And uh, we had a good thing going. We were building a great thing there. And all of a sudden, here we go. Let's do it again. So let us go back to September the 8th, 1985. Radio 1 News. The cruise ship Achille Lauro had been hijacked in the Mediterranean by Palestinian terrorists. The wreck of the Titanic had just been discovered at the bottom of the ocean and Super Mario Brothers had just been released by Nintendo. In the UK charts, Dancing in the Streets by David Bowie and Mick Jagger was number one, was about to be usurped by Bonnie Tyler's Holding Out for a Hero, which was also being used as Channel 4's NFL coverage theme music. In the US, St Elmo's Fire by John Parr had just taken over from The Power of Love by Huey Lewis at the News at number one in the Billboard charts. The top film in the US was Back to the Future, in the middle of an 11-week run as the number one box office attraction, while Desperately Seeking Susan was top billing on this side of the Atlantic. On TV, The Golden Girls and MacIver both debuted in September 1985. In Tampa, Lehman Bennett is the new head coach of the Buccaneers, returning from a two-year hiatus from the NFL, and he has welcomed the fans to practice to watch him rebuild the Bucks. Bennett follows John McKay, the only other coach in Tampa Bay's 10-year history. McKay's legacy includes the talented James Wilder, the bulwark of the Bucks' offense last year with more than 2,000 total yards. The CBS commentary crew for this game were Tim Ryan and Johnny Morris, who together worked 13 Buccaneer games between 1978 and 86, 10 of them Chicago matchups. Ryan would work a total of 40 Tampa Bay games in his two-decade NFL career, fourth only behind Sam Rosen, Kenny Albert and the corpse of Dick Stockton in Buccaneer Annals. A couple of interesting notes on that starting defensive 11. So Chris Lindstrom is the answer to the trivia question on who replaced Leroy Selman. 
Now, he would only start this game and one other in his Buccaneer career that amounted to six tackles and no sacks. Not exactly a replacement for Leroy. The Bucs had drafted the late Ron Holmes with the eighth overall selection, but his four-year Tampa career was somewhat of a disappointment, but he did record 19 sacks in his 51 games. Leroy had injured his back at the 1934 Pro Bowl and was at the time still hopeful of returning to the field at some point. Veterans Mark Cotney and Beasley Reese had been cut in training camp, leaving David Greenwood and Ivory Sully manning the safety positions. Now Greenwood is the ultimate Iron Man as he played an entire 18-game season in the USFL that spring with the Oakland Invaders. He then came to camp with the Buccaneers when the USFL folded, and he would play every game in 85 with the Bucs. That's 34 games in one calendar year. How much was the loss of Leroy Selman to the team off the field as much as on it? Well, and I think that's where we felt it the most was off the field and in the locker room, you know, that camaraderie. Lee, Leroy was a guy who, you know, he taught me how to be how to be a professional, you know, not only on the field, but off the field as well. But to, to, to not have his presence in the locker room, you know, that and, and it's a, it's it's almost like a calming fatherly type presence, you know, where, uh, you know, everything's going to be OK and that nothing's going to happen. And if it does, you've got you've got a lot of good people uh, that, that have your back. Uh, but not having him, you know, before that pregame or, or before running out on that field and doing those, you know, his little speeches and having his presence on the on the sideline, it was uh, it, it it took some getting used to. So, what was it like going up against Leroy in practice? Oh my God, Le- Leroy's the kind of guy that would throw you on the ground and then help you up, you know, with a big smile on his face and. And you knew that going in, and you knew you had to be prepared for him for, for whatever he was going to give you. But, you know, saying that, it made you a better player. It made you prepare in a different way. Even though it was just practice, it made you prepare in a different way. And, you know, I talk all the time about, you know, how we back in that era, you know, we used to beat the hell out of each other every day because, you know, the coaching mentality back then was if you don't practice hard, you're not going to play hard. And, man, we used to go at it, and uh, offensive and defensive lines did. And, you know, Coach Gibberon was out there, and, and, and but, you know, egging those guys on. And it was just uh, as hard as it was and as much as we beat each other up, we always had a good time. You know, we always it was always good, healthy banter and, uh, you know, locker room, that camaraderie and everything, and, uh, Leroy made you grow up, or you didn't stay long in the NFL. The Bears gained a pair of first downs before being forced to punt, and Leon Bright's 21-yard return gave the Bucks the ball on their own 29 for their first offensive series of the season. Steve DeBerg from San Jose State as James Wilder as his lone setback. Kevin House and Gerald oh, Carter, two burners at wide receiver. Jerry Bell. The tight end, or the U-back, as Lehman Bennett calls him, and the front line, Yarno, Corson, Grimes, Sean Farrell, and Dandy. Second-year man, Ron Heller, and an outstanding tight end, number 88, Jimmy Giles. Buccaneers, their opening offensive series of 85. Wilder again breaks a tackle and has running room. James Wilder to the 41-yard line of the Bears. DeBerg on play action as Giles wide open. 
Jimmy Giles for a first down Tampa Bay all the way to the Chicago 22-yard line. At the 20-yard line on third down, Sean Gale in defensively to Berg. Hits Jerry Bell, and Bell bulls his way close to the goal line. Finally stopped by Sean Gale, the nickelback. First and goal at the one-and-a-half-yard line. William Perry, the refrigerator, in defensively for the oh. Bears. Play action, wide open, touchdown. Beautiful play, well executed to Kelvin McGee, the rookie tight end from Southern University, running out of the U-back position. Chicago responded by going 80 yards in 10 plays to tie the score on a 21-yard pass from Jim McMahon to Dennis McKinnon, but it did not take the Buccaneers long to regain the lead. Two plays to be exact. Kevin Butler, the rookie from Georgia, kicks off for the Bears. It comes down inside the goal line and is taken by Phil Freeman, a Buccaneer rookie who's got running room. Freeman is tackled by the kicker, Butler, at the Bear 45-yard line, a 57-yard return by Phil Freeman. Passing on first down, going deep. He's got a man open. Touchdown, Kevin House. 44-yard touchdown. Steve DeBerg to Kevin House on first down, and the Buccaneers are back in front. And after a punt inadvertently hit a bare defender and was recovered by Ivory Sully at the Chicago 11-yard line, the Bucks extended their lead to 21-7 with another DeBerg scoring pass, this one to a good friend of BuckBauer.com. Lone setback is Wilder. He has the ball. No play action. Nice fake. Touchdown, Jerry Bell. Steve DeBerg with a beautiful fake, and Jerry Bell wide open as the Bears twice now have left receivers wide open for scores. So the Buccaneers had quite a decent offense at the 84, and in the first half of this game, the offensive skill players were the stars, Kevin House, Jerry Bell, Jimmy Giles, people you all still know quite well. I do, I do. And that, hey, that's a quite a little tight end receiving core right there, you know, with, with, with Bell and Giles. Uh, you know, I think the defense, I think we had plenty of opportunities to, to, to have a great passing game. We just never really got there, you know, and whether that was the QB, whether that was the wideouts, you know, House was a great wideout. We had some good Gerald Carter. We had some really good wideouts. Just never could really get him the ball. We just didn't have that person yet that was ready to uh, really have that breakout season and, and get him the ball. And I always thought that our offensive lines were well coached. I'll, we might we might have had a weak player here or there, but we were always well coached. We were ready to go. We knew what to do. We were aggressive. We were mean. Um, but you know, just never it never came together. You always come into training camp thinking that that's going to be the year, you know. And it seems like it never turns out to be the year. That's why I called our magazine here in the UK, There's Always Next Year, because it summed up being a Buccaneer fan. <laughs> right. After the Bears pulled it back to 21-17 on Kevin Butler's first NFL field goal, the Bucks took over with 2.26 remaining at their own 21-yard line. And the best running back in franchise history went to work. First down, Tampa Bay from the 21. They give us to Wilder. He's got a big hole. Wilder running away from people. Dewerson. Fensick finally combined to stop him, but another first down for Tampa Bay at the 45-yard line. A 22-yard pickup for James Wilder. Blitz, draw play. Wilder shakes another tackle, and he's got running room. 
Wilder all the way down to the 15-yard line. They simply cannot stop this man today. Perry is in defensively. Wilder pulls his way in for a touchdown. James Wilder. Three Bears hit him, but they could not stop him short of the line. Dewerson was there. The linebacker, Otis Wilson. And Mike Hardenstein, but they could not keep him out of the end zone. James Wilder, just how good was he? The best I've ever seen, you know. I remember people talking about sweetness and, and how great he was and, and how everybody wanted to be like Walter Payton, you know. And James Wilder was the best. And most underrated running back to this point, as far as I'm concerned. He never got the accolades that he deserved. It was all because he was a buccaneer in the 80s and early 90s, you know. It was all because of that. And James was a great teammate. He was a great guy off the field. He was one of the best-looking guys I've ever seen. Always had the greatest cars, had a great family, and he was just a hell of a running back. You better have a hole cleared for him because if you don't, he's going to run right over you and the guy you're blocking. Some of the things that I've seen him done do, not only in, in the games but in practice, is just, uh, you know, just uh, an exceptional athlete. And such a nice guy. Just such a nice guy. Do you think he got run into the ground by McKay and, and Bennett? Absolutely. You know, they knew what they had, and they knew that that was the only weapon that they had. We didn't have a passing game like, like a lot of teams did that were winning back then. So that was their only alternative was to hand that ball off to him. And, and you know, Wilder doesn't get enough credit for the blocking that he did. He was a great blocking running back. That guy took a real beating back there, that's for sure. Do you think he belongs in the Buccaneer Ring of Honor? Absolutely, without a doubt. If Lehman Bennett had ended his Buccaneer coaching career at halftime, he would have been regarded as a legend. Unfortunately, it continued for another 31 and a half games. Now, this one turned on the second play of the second half, when on second and six from the Buck 28, Steve DeBerg tried to hit Gerald Carter, the quick pass to the left sideline. Short drop, the ball is tipped, intercepted. Mike Richardson, I make it Frazier, Leslie Frazier, 21. Richard Dent got a hand on the ball, and Leslie Frazier alertly picked it off and took it into the end zone. A 29-yard touchdown, and the Bears strike quickly here in the second half. The Bucks would only gain 95 yards on 30 plays after half-time. Jim McMahon threw a touchdown pass to Matsui and then ran one in himself after Frank Garcia had a punt block by future Sky Sports presenter Sean Gale. Richard Dent had a pair of sacks and the Bucks' last hope was Donald Igor Boyke's 39-yard field goal attempt with 2.20 remaining, but it hit the post and the Bears ran out the clock for a 38-28 victory. The Tampa Bay game plan in the second half, orchestrated by Bennett and offensive coordinator Jimmy Ray, was way more conservative, and every time DeBerg tried to pass, he was greeted by the sleuth of Bears. The Bears 46 defence. What was it like to play against? Do you still have nightmares? <laughs> I didn't. You mean there was more people out there than just Perry? Because that's all I could see. You know, he took up so much room in front of me, I couldn't see anybody else. I knew my buddy from Baylor was right behind him, you know, Mike Singletary, but those were great defenses, you know, and that was a great scheme. If you ever learned to block them, though, you were going to crush them because that was, you know, like Marino did, and, and their only loss that year 
he figured out a way to, to beat that defense, and it was to pass because everybody was rushing the quarterback. But, uh, you know, we had some great games against them, and uh, I feel like we did a pretty good job. I can remember at least the offensive line was grading out pretty decent. It, it was a good scheme if you had a quarterback that couldn't get rid of the ball in a hurry, you know, because they were going to get to you eventually. No matter if you blocked everybody, there was going to be one or two that were, were still uh, left left alone. Um, I know that was Dent's big year to have uh, all those sacks. Uh, I know that, uh, you know, the a guy that you don't talk enough about or we don't talk enough about for that defense was Wilbur Marshall. That guy was all over the field. You know, Singletary was a great player, and, yeah, he's a Hall of Famer without a doubt. But uh, Wilbur Marshall was all over that field. So something I've noticed from looking at the game film is the Buccaneer offense was very much seven-step drops. And the, you talked about Dan Marino beating them, which they did. It was the only game the Bears lost. He went to three- and five-step drops to get the ball out quickly. And unfortunately, teams hadn't realized that. Steve DeBerg's dropping back seven steps and finding a handful of Bears waiting for him. You're, you're, you're exactly right. And that's a good analysis because, yeah, gap protection – and three-step drops, that was the way to go. Or play action, you know, with a short three-step drop. And um, looking back now, of course, hindsight's twenty twenty, and they and believe me, they never paid me to coach the team, or I'd have told them that. But, yeah, you know, we called it hinge protection, where you would just take, you know, hinge to the gap, uh, whatever gap was designated, and that would have shut that down. Of course, there would have been somebody coming open on the backside, but if you got rid of the ball quick enough, it didn't matter. So, yeah, you're right. Marino figured it out, and uh, they won the game. They won the game pretty good, too, if I remember, about two, three touchdowns. The CBS coverage was interrupted in the second half by Brent Musburger, who was looking live at Wrigley Field when Pete Rose recorded his 4,191st hit to tie Ty Cobb. He would, of course, break the record a few days later with a single off the Padres' Eric Schell. The game ended and CBS headed to New York where Ivan Lendl was about to defeat John McEnroe in the final of the US Open in straight sets. The Bucs would go on to lose their first nine games of the 1985 season and the defence gave up 27 points in seven of the first eight. They would finally beat the St. Louis Cardinals but then give up a franchise record 62 points to the Jets and Steve DeBerg was replaced by Steve Young. Star linebacker Hugh Green was particularly vocal about the direction the team and defence was taking and demanded a trade. He was shipped to the Dolphins for first and second round picks, both of which were then wasted the following year on bad selections. The really bad years of Buccaneer football were on their way. But through it all, Randy Grimes continued to do his best on the offensive line before retiring in 1992, and last year he wrote an amazing book that combined both his career with the Buccaneers and his work in setting up athletes in recovery. Randy, off-centre, not the usual autobiography, because most players tell the story of their careers. You've done it in a slightly different way. Why did you do it like that? Well, unfortunately, it's a story about my career in addiction, you know, and uh, mixed with a lot of football because that's where it all started was at one buck place. And, uh, you know, I wanted I wanted there to be something in the book for everybody and and in order to get every character and every emotion and every feeling in the book. I had to have all these different characters. So that's why I wrote it paralleling 
a, uh, a fictitious intervention that's going that me and my wife were doing at the time. But I will say this, a lot those characters were all people that we've come across over the years. You know, the angry father, the the uh, the uh, codependent mom, you know, the, the 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 boss who is threatening to fire you if you don't get well. All those kind of people were were people that we've come across and we wanted to include all those emotions and everything. So we wrote it parallel with our story. And I, I worried for a long time that people wouldn't be able to keep up with it, that going back and forth would be a real problem with two different stories. But you know what? They, Paul, they, they flow really well together and uh, everybody seems to, uh, to love it. And it's, it's an easy read. And I'm, I'm just really shocked because the whole reason we wrote the book was so our family could heal from uh, everything that I put them through with my addiction. I mean, I've read a lot of sports books over the years. I've read every Buccaneer book. It's so far and away the best book by a Buccaneer. If, if you're a Bucks fan and you haven't got this, you need to order it off Amazon right now. It's that good. Well, I appreciate it. And your check's in the mail, too, for, for marketing it for me. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you for being part of this podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for letting me relive some of those great memories. You know, the scores never turned out like we wanted them to. But, you know, the camaraderie and being with my, my buddies and playing just a great game of football at the Sombrero or, or at Soldier Field. Well, it was a great opportunity and I loved every minute of it. You can still listen to all the other Buck Power historical podcasts from the menu screen on the front of BuckPower.com or from wherever you get your regular podcasts, iTunes or Spotify. Just search for the BuckPower.com podcast network, where you will also find the weekly features produced by Peter Blake and Jason Powers. My thanks once again to Randy Grimes and also to the Buck Cyber reporter TJ Rees for his ongoing support. The 48th season of Buccaneer football is about to begin. Now all Buck fans have seen both good and bad over the previous 47. Right now, we're all expecting another good one. And you will be able to review it all on BuckPower.com. Every player, every game... Everything bucks. Oh, my God.